Salvation is a fundamental theme of the Bible. God desires that all of mankind come to a knowledge of Him and obey the truth. In this lesson, Jim Dearman uses the analogy of the simple act of buckling one's seatbelt to compare the simplicity in God's plan for salvation. Join Jim in opening God's Word to hear what it has to say about your salvation. What is the simplest subject in the Bible? What comes to your mind when I ask you that question? I tell you what comes to my mind, salvation. Yes, I believe that salvation is the simplest subject in God's Word. Why do I say that? I say that because of a passage in 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. And if you have your Bible, read along with me here. In 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul writes, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, what do those verses have to do with the simplicity of the subject of salvation? I think this is the case. Salvation has to be simple because it is the dream of God, if you will, the desire of God, as Paul expresses it here, that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Would it not follow then, logically, that if God desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, that the truth would be simple enough to understand? And I believe it is. But that may bring to mind another question. You may say, well, if indeed the subject of salvation is so simple, then why is there such diversity of teaching on the subject of salvation in the religious world, calling itself Christian? Why does one group contend that one must do a certain thing in order to be saved, while another group says, no, that's not right, you must, you must do something else in order to be saved? Is God the source of that confusion? Absolutely not. The problem lies with the traditions of men, the adding to the Word of God. What I want us to do is simply get back to the Bible, the New Testament, the last will and testament of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and just see how simple the subject of salvation is. How simple? As simple as the operation of a seatbelt. And a little bit later on we're just going to talk more about that seatbelt and simply demonstrate that if you know how to operate a seatbelt, and surely you do, then you can know what to do to be saved. Salvation and the seatbelt. You know, the idea for this study, this particular approach to this subject, came to my mind when I was driving back into the state of Tennessee from a neighboring state on one occasion. And as I entered the state of Tennessee, I saw a sign, a blue sign as I recall, with white lettering and a, a red seat belt being shown uh, coming together, as it were, on the sign. And the sign had only six words. The words were, Tennessee cares, buckle up, state law. Tennessee cares, buckle up, state law. And that message was, was clear. Here was the, the seatbelt, much like the one I have here being depicted on that sign, being shown as though coming together, and those six words, Tennessee cares, buckle up, state law. And I thought about an analogy there a spiritual analogy. That analogy being simply this, God cares. 
And God says, buckle up. And then he reminds us that's his law. And that's what we're going to talk about as we talk about the operation of the seatbelt and how simple it is, but also how simple God's plan of salvation is. Because God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, that sign on that highway going into the state of Tennessee seeks to convey that Tennessee cares for your physical life. We care for your physical safety, in other words, and because that is the case, we're telling you that you need to buckle up. That is, you need to buckle your seatbelt. But then that reminder with those last two words on the sign is, it's the law, state law. In other words, you don't have an option. We're hoping to motivate you to do it based upon the fact that obviously you want to take care of yourself physically and we care about your physical safety and so we're encouraging you but we're reminding you it's not simply an optional thing, it's the law. The same is true with the matter of salvation. Who could deny that God cared for the world and those who comprise this world in the ultimate sense of care and concern and love? John 3.16 reminds us of that, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the golden text of the Bible as we call it. God so loved. He loved to that degree that he was willing to give his only begotten Son. And the only begotten Son loved us to the degree that he was willing to give himself as a sacrifice for us, that we might have the opportunity to be saved from our sins. There was no other way. The blood of bulls and goats and, and those other animals under that former dispensation, the Old Testament dispensation, could not take away sins. They pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, the sinless Son of God, and the blood that had to be shed on Calvary for our sins. And without the shedding of blood, the scripture reminds us that there is no remission of sins. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. Notice what he says there. In verse 22, according to the law, and according to the law almost all things are purged with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Now, that's clearly established. Without the shedding of Christ's blood, Forgiveness of sins would not be possible. Surely we can agree on that. If we go back a little bit earlier in this same chapter, Hebrews chapter 9, in verses 13 and, and 14, he contrasts the blood of bulls and goats, those animal sacrifices, with the blood of Christ. And he writes there in Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So it becomes clear to us from those passages that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. There can be no forgiveness. But let's ask this question. Is the mere fact that Jesus shed his blood, that the blood was shed, is the shedding of the blood itself sufficient to bring about the forgiveness of the sins of all mankind? The answer is no. And if we 
simply get back to the analogy of the seatbelt, we ask this question in regard to the seatbelt. Does the fact that a seatbelt has been manufactured, that it meets the manufacturer's standards, the, the federal standards that are required for all automobile seatbelts, does the fact that that seatbelt exists, that it's been manufactured, does that mean that it will save me in the event of an accident that I may have in my vehicle? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? Absolutely not. The mere existence of a seatbelt will not save my life. There has to be something more. The fact that it was manufactured according to all the federal regulations, etc., doesn't make any difference because there's something more required. Well, the same is true in regard to salvation, unless you're a universalist who, who says that, yes, all men will be saved regardless, but how can one be a universalist and possibly claim to believe the Bible? Because again, going back, going back to the golden text of the Bible, as we call it, John 3.16, we see some condition there in that verse. Listen to it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Ah, there we are now. Someone says, that's exactly right. It's not universalism, obviously, that is valid. It's not the mere fact that Jesus shed his blood that brings remission of sins or salvation. But we must believe. We must believe. And so whoever believes. But then we must ask, what about that belief? What kind of belief, what kind of faith must I exercise in order to be saved? Well, again, let's go back to the seatbelt analogy. What kind of faith must I have in, in this seatbelt if I am to be saved uh, from physical harm in the event of an accident? Now, let's say that I get into my automobile and that my wife is at my side and I'm in the driver's seat and I get in the car and I sit down and she says, uh, Jim, you need to buckle your seatbelt. And I say to her, no, I can't do that. And she further inquires, why not? And I say, because I believe in it too much. And she says, what do you mean you believe in it too much? And I simply say, I, 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 that's just what I'm saying. I believe in it too much. You see, I have so much faith in this seatbelt that I believe that it will save me. And I believe that very strongly. But don't you understand that if I reach and put it around me, if I put it on, then I'm seeking to to work out my own salvation through this seatbelt, and I'm negating or denying my faith in it. Now, what if I said that to my wife in the car? What might she say to me? She might say, let me drive. She might say that because she would realize that, that that's not a logical response. Why not? Because she would understand, just as you understand and I understand, that in regard to the operation of the seatbelt, the only possible way that I can show my faith in the seatbelt is by doing what? By putting it on. And that, in fact, if I refuse to put it on, then I have truly denied my faith in the seatbelt. Now, that's a simple analogy to the matter of salvation and the faith that saves. The faith that saves is truly the faith that obeys. That is, the faith that causes me to do something in response to the commands of God as given to me through His Son, Jesus Christ, in the New Testament. I must work together with God in order to bring about my salvation. 
That reminds me of something I used to have on one of the vehicles I owned in the past, and that was a, a little sticker that was on the, the driver's window and I think on the passenger side too, from the manufacturer that said, together we can save lives. And again, it pictured a, a seatbelt there. Notice that, together we can save lives. What was the manufacturer of that automobile trying to tell me? The manufacturer was telling me that if you'll work with me, we can save your life. Now, how are you going to work with me? You're going to work with me by putting on your seatbelt. I have manufactured it. I have put it at your disposal. It is there. It is yours for the using. But the point is, you must work with me. You must put it on in order for it to save you in the event of an accident. Now then, by faith, we work together with our manufacturer, our creator, the God of heaven. By faith, we work together with God who, yes, saves us by His grace. It's by His grace that He has given us the plan of salvation, but it's by my faith that I appropriate the grace of God. There are conditions. It is not grace alone. It is not the manufacturer of the seatbelt alone. It's not the fact that it's in my vehicle alone that's going to save me in an accident. No, I must do something, and I understand that. You understand that completely. Then we must be able to understand that in the realm of saving faith, the saving faith is the faith that causes me to respond to the grace of God by an obedient faith that complies with the commands of God. I must respond. It's interesting that in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27, the Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear that this is the only kind of faith that has any validity at all in bringing about our salvation. Writing to those who had already obeyed the gospel and who had become Christians, notice what he says to them. In verse 26 of Galatians 3, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now notice how it all came about. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now notice something. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And where are you once you've put on Christ? You're in Christ. You're in a saved relationship. Now let me ask you in regard to this seatbelt. Where am I once I have put on this seatbelt? I'm in my seatbelt, am I not? Of course I am. I'm in the seatbelt. What does Paul say? For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And when you have put him on through baptism, where are you? You are in Christ. Can anyone be saved outside of Christ? No. Therefore, baptism obviously becomes the culminating act of faith. Yes, obedient faith that places us into Christ. Oh, yes, we must believe that he is the Christ, certainly. That's where it all begins. But we must also repent of our sins. Jesus says, unless we repent, we will all perish. Luke 13 and verse 3, and again at verse 5. Jesus says we must confess him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Paul wrote of the confession in Romans chapter 10. We must confess with our lips that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the sweet confession that we make toward salvation. 
But when does salvation from sin occur? When we put on Christ. And that is in that burial and baptism where the blood of Jesus Christ is applied to cleanse us from our sins. And then and only then are we in Christ. Then and only then are we buckled to the blood of Christ. In other words, we come into contact with that blood. We become tied to that blood. Where was the blood of Christ shed? It was shed in his death, wasn't it? Remember when the soldiers came to, to break the legs of those who were hanging on the cross to hasten their death, and when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but a soldier took the spear, as you recall, and pierced his side. And the scripture says there in John 19, 34, forthwith came there out blood and water. Forthwith came there out blood and water. Then when we turn to Romans chapter 6, we see the Apostle Paul by inspiration reminding those Christians of just what they had done in obeying their Lord and in coming into contact with that saving blood. The blood that was shed in his death, John 19, 34, is contacted by us to remit our sins in the likeness of his death, which is what? Baptism. Listen to Romans 6, beginning with verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us, listen to this, as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When do we begin to walk in newness of life? When we have been buried with Christ. And why is that burial so important? Because only in that burial is the blood of Christ applied to cleanse us from our sins because it was in the death of Christ that that blood was shed and only in the likeness of that death, burial, and resurrection do we come into contact with that saving blood. That's why the scriptures speak of washing us in his blood. Where is the washing? It's in the water of baptism. Are we cleansed by the water? No, but only in the water is the blood, the cleansing blood, applied. And that's what these passages we have seen and others that could be cited clearly demonstrate. And so, just as I must be in my seatbelt in order for it to be effective in the event of an accident, I must be in Christ. And the only way to be in Christ is by a faith that will lead me to repent, confess him as the Christ, and then be buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of my sins. Then and only then am I in Christ. Then and only then have I demonstrated the kind of faith that brings about remission of sins. Just as when I put on my seatbelt, I'm demonstrating my true belief, my faith in this belt. If I refuse to put it on, then I'm actually denying my faith. Now, another question. And that is, how do I stay buckled? How do I stay buckled? How do I stay tied to the blood of Christ? Buckled to the blood, if you will. Let's look at a passage in 1 John. In chapter 1 and verse 7, beginning. And notice what John writes by inspiration here. Writing to Christians, he says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say, verse 10, that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What's he saying? If we walk in the light, remember Romans 6 said we're raised to walk in newness of life, which is equivalent to walking in the light, in the light of God's word. If we keep walking in the light, then we have fellowship and the blood of Christ keeps on cleansing us. And then we are to what? Confess our sins regularly to the throne of heaven as members of the Lord's body as Christians. We recognize we fall short and so we regularly confess our sins as we continue our walk in the light. And that's what keeps us tied, or if you will, buckled to the blood, the cleansing, continually cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Now, Again, that passage, 1 John 1, beginning at verse 7, makes it clear that remaining tied or buckled to the blood is conditional, isn't it? It's conditional. I have to keep walking in the light, that is, following God's word, being faithful to him, once added to the church, to which I'm added upon my obedience to the gospel of Christ, and I must continue to walk in the light and, of course, regularly go to God in prayer and confess my sins and shortcomings to the throne of heaven through Jesus Christ. So. That being the case, it cannot be true that once I'm buckled, I'm always buckled. It's not once buckled, always buckled. In other words, it's not once saved, always saved, as some contend in the religious world today. You see, it's conditional. My salvation, continued salvation, is conditional upon my continued walk with God, following His Word, and my regular confession of sins. Once buckled, always buckled, is not the case. Now, again, let's go back to, to my automobile. Let's say that I'm getting in my car again, and uh, I've been in it before, of course, and driven it several times, and again, my wife is at my side, and, and this time, again, she says, when I get in the driver's seat, she says, Jim, buckle up. And I say, don't you remember that the first time I ever got into this car, I buckled up? And don't you know that once buckled, always buckled? What might she say to me? That's right. Again, she might say, let me drive. <laughs> Why? Because she understands that there's something I must continually do, and that is continually show my faith in my seatbelt by doing what? By putting it on each time that I get into the car. Now, I don't have to put Christ on in baptism over and over again. We've already established that that's something I do once when I obey the gospel, but I must continue to be tied to the blood of Christ. 1 John 1, 7 beginning, by what? Walking in the light as he is in the light and by regularly confessing my sins and shortcomings to the throne of heaven. I must keep doing the will of God. What if I cease to do that? Do I any longer have fellowship with God? Absolutely not. And there are so many passages in Scripture that make it clear that Christians, yes, Christians, those who have obeyed the gospel of Christ, may indeed so conduct themselves as to lose their souls eternally. Think about one passage in particular in the epistle to the Hebrews. Writing now to Christians, think about what the writer says here in chapter 3 and verse 12. It's an excellent passage to demonstrate the fact that one can fall away once one becomes a Christian. Listen to the words in Hebrews 3.12. Beware, a warning, right? Beware, brethren. Beware whom? Brethren. 
brethren, Christians, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you, you brethren now, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Listen to it again. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. That passage and literally hundreds of others teach us very clearly that it's not the case that once buckled, we're always buckled. No, it is the case that we can lose our souls. Now, let me demonstrate something from a passage that is sometimes used to try to defend the idea of once saved, always saved. In John 10, beginning at verse uh, 27, Jesus there says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now some go to that passage and say, well, look what that says. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me, and no one can take them away. I believe that with all my heart. But do I believe that that passage teaches the impossibility of apostasy? Absolutely not. Why not? Because the passage is clearly conditional. Notice, Jesus says in verse 27, My sheep, first of all, hear my voice. That's a condition, isn't it? And I know them, and they what? And they follow me, and I give them eternal life. They follow me, and I give them eternal life. What if they cease to follow? Then they no longer have eternal life. That's what all of the New Testament makes absolutely clear, and this passage does not contradict the hundreds of others. It, in fact, harmonizes beautifully. You see, the condition is that we must continue to follow the shepherd. And as we do, no one can what? Arbitrarily snatch us from his hand. Now, back to the seatbelt. Could you arbitrarily snatch the seatbelt here from around me? Could you pull this and snatch it away? No, you can't do that. But what? I can take it off. I can remove it myself. And that's the point of this passage. We can remove ourselves from God and Christ in terms of being approved by them by what? By our disobedience, by our unfaithfulness. No one can arbitrarily snatch us from the Father's hand as long as we are what? Following the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. Now then, a final question. When should I buckle up? When should I buckle up? Well, let's go back to the seatbelt. When should I buckle my seatbelt? Is it while I am driving down a busy interstate highway and I suddenly realize an 18-wheeler has veered and is coming right at me head on? Is that the time to say, I need to get my seatbelt, I need to buckle up? It's too late, isn't it? It's too late. When should I buckle up to the blood of Christ? When should I come into contact with that saving blood by an obedient faith that leads me to repent of my sins, confess Him as Lord and Savior, and be buried with Him in baptism? The answer to that is now, at the first opportunity, when you've learned the truth of God's Word, because you do not know what tomorrow holds, as James points out in James chapter 4, 14 and 15. Now is the time. This is the time to buckle up to the saving blood of Jesus Christ, which can truly save us from our sins 
And it's the only thing that can, but we must contact it in the only way that we can, and that is according to God's plan given through His Son, Jesus Christ. It is simple because God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth.